Welcome to Word from the Herd, produced and brought to you by the Kimmel Foundation for Recovering Leadership. Well, hello. Welcome to Word from the Herd. I'm your host, Thomas Hill, and today I have the privilege of being joined by Jill Castilla. Now, if you haven't heard of Jill, and you probably have because she's running with some pretty important people these days, but Jill is the president and CEO of Citizens Bank of Edmond. And that in and of itself is a fantastic story, which I hope she's going to tell us a little bit about. But she's got a lot of other very interesting things in her background. She's been in the Army and the Oklahoma Army National Guard as a construction and civil engineer, so building things and overseeing that. Um, has several degrees, including a master's degree in economics, and, uh, and just has done some really interesting things in her life. But the thing that, that, that I'm the most impressed with in, in Jill's life is, is what she has been able to do with this uh, community bank in Edmond in terms of uh, how it serves the community and the people that, that are in that community. I've known Jill for a little while. Uh, we run in some of the same circles. And if somebody asked me, you know, describe Jill in a few words, I would say the first words that came to mind would be vibrant, uh, determined, but interestingly, very approachable. And I think that's a wonderful quality she has. So Jill, welcome to Word from the Herd. Thank you for being here. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So, and that is something that, that I think about when I think of you is your approachability. A lot of times leaders... Um, are not approachable, whether that's just because they feel like they have to keep that distance. You know, we've all heard that we're not supposed to be best friends or friends with the, with the people that, that we work with. And, um, but uh, every, the first time I met you, you could have just been a, any, any person. You know, you, you wouldn't even know that you were important or had done all these, all these things. And, and I, that obviously has had an impact on, on what you do. So um, in your role now as, as the CEO of a bank, uh, talk to me a little bit about you know how you go about relating to the people around you uh, from a leadership role and and maybe maybe where you got that from. Well, it's probably pretty selfish, honestly, and self-serving because um, I, I found that the greatest ideas, the most innovation, the the most inspiration I get, the greatest joy I get is when I'm interacting with those um, on the front lines, whether it's our team members, our customers, those startup businesses, the struggling community members, the areas of town that um, are struggling to have their leadership elevated. Um, you know, that's where I get a lot of joy and inspiration, and it makes my job so much easier by, by making sure that I'm really connecting. I think a lot of it, too, is um, being vulnerable as a leader, you know, sharing your stories, sharing, sharing your failures, letting your team understand what risk you're taking and what, letting them pull the curtain um, behind aside so they can see really what the what, the way your mind works and, and then inviting them to challenge um, challenge you on that. I love the book Radical Candor. And so we practice that at our, at our with a team where I want the best minds around me to to rigorously be challenging my ideas. But really, I, I think that selfishly, it's getting those ideas from the team members and, and letting them really assess customer needs, wants, community um, vulnerabilities, ways that we can help. And then there's just so much joy there whenever you're able to mobilize resources to fill those needs. Oh, that's fantastic. At, you know, here at Kimray, we often refer to the wisdom of the crowd, which I think it's the same concept in that if we get enough people looking at a, at a situation or a possibility from enough different angles, 
we're going to get great op, you know, opportunities and great ideas. And it's often uh, the most unlikely places that those come from. We, we, you know, we don't want to discount where great ideas could come from. That, that's, that's great. So lots of people probably have interesting stories about how they got where they were, but yours is really interesting. I mean, you took a very circuitous route to get from um, your childhood to now being the CEO of, of a very well-known and nationally recognized bank. Um, if, if you don't mind, give us give us kind of the, the five or ten minute version of, of how you got here. And along the way, um, a lot of people invested in you, I know, because I've read your story and, and heard you tell your story. And so talk to, that, to us a little bit about that, about what it means to you to have had people invest in you and invest in what mattered to you. Yes, thanks. Um, I'll try to keep it to five to ten minutes. It's a curvy trail, so don't, you know, pull me out of any rabbit trails I'm no running down. Um, so I grew up in Altmulgee, so the eastern part of Oklahoma. Single dad. My dad was a probation and parole officer raising two girls, and it really was a community effort to raise us. He was um, working quite a bit. Um, we weren't poor, poor, but we were definitely on kind of the wrong side of the tracks and, and struggled financially and um, and the expectation wasn't to go to college. And I worked all through high school, as my sister did. Um, my, the grocery store, Homeland, was just down the street from where I grew up. So I worked at Homeland and would carry groceries out while I you know, was a cheerleader and played in the band and all that kind of stuff in high school and, and did really well in school, but never had the expectation from anyone that I would go to college. Um, I was really um, fortunate that I also like waitress at the local country club, and I happened to interact quite a bit with Lorleen Mabry of the Mabry family that owns uh, the Mabry Bank. Um, but at that time, it was Citizens Bank in Omulgi, and she was the chairwoman of the bank board. And every time I carried her groceries out, I went to school with her grandkids who were on the other side of the tracks from where I grew up. And she would always ask me, have you taken the ACT? Where are you going to college? Where are you applying to? And I would almost get some anxiety when I saw her because I knew I had to have an answer. And without Mrs. Mabry asking me those questions, there's no way I would have applied for college. And so I ended up going to Oklahoma State. I got a pretty good scholarship there, transferred to Homeland and Stillwater, um, but thought I, and my parents didn't understand financial aid, so I didn't get to apply for financial aid at that time. I would have qualified carrying groceries out and just happened to interact with the army recruiter. Um, I was going to have to drop out of school and go back to Omulgi, kind of save some money back up to go back to Stillwater. And he's like, well, why don't you just enlist in the army? You become an independent student. You can apply for financial aid. You can get the GI Bill. After a while, you can go into ROTC and get a scholarship and become an officer ultimately. And so um, it was really like, it was two o'clock in the morning on a Thursday night in Stillwater. And um, it was like the heavens opened up and like angels started singing and it just was my, I was out of hope and it just really helped me find a way to continue moving forward. And so I enlisted the next day, um, took the ASVAB and I was a chemical engineering major at OSU. And so um, I tested into a construction surveying position, a construction engineer position. Um, and enlisted. And so I was just a private going in, went to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, and was there for a couple years surveying, drafting, doing a site soil analysis. And then um, I had all my money direct deposit into the bank at Citizens. Um, coincidentally, I came back home, I was just living on my substance allowance, they give you like $130 a month to live on. And I came back and I wrote a check. One of my family members took me shopping because I had bulked up, you know, they feed you a lot of carbs in the army. And um, I didn't fit in my clothes. I was going to be back to OSU in style. And I wrote my check. And my check, I got a notice that I was overdrawn. I thought I had $15,000 in the bank. And I was completely overdrawn. 
And then um, I found checks where this family member had that take me shopping, had spent all my money while I was gone. And so I was August. I hadn't applied for financial aid. I had no money for school. And so I went to and got one of those big college books and um, at the library and found a school in South Texas that would um, that would give me a scholarship. I basically like hitchhiked down to down to South Texas, you know, get a ride to Dallas, got a ride to San Antonio, get a ride to Kingsville, southwest of Corpus Christi. Walk into the ROTC building. First person I meet is my husband Marcus, who becomes fast friends, and uh, we end up getting married. Um, he end up gets he gets stationed in Hawaii. Uh, we re- relocate to Hawaii. I've got four years of chemical engineering under my belt at this point, thinking I'm going to set him up for a semester, then head back to Texas and finish up my degree. We're in our early 20s in Hawaii, which is, you know, why would you leave on the government time? And so um, I was working at Crazy Shirts, a t-shirt company there, and my boss just said, you're so talented in numbers, but you really like people too. And I know you like this engineering gig, but you might consider just going into business, getting a business degree, and you can always go back to engineering. So I went to the local university, Hawaii Pacific University, down the street, and they gave me, they were very liberal, would let me transfer credits. I took 33 credit hours a semester while I worked full-time there, finished a finance degree in a year, and just fell in love with, like, economics and finance. University of Oklahoma had a master's degree in economics at that they offered in Hawaii. So, I, you know, how, how coincidental is that? And so I started that program in Hawaii. And um, my husband and I decided to come back to Oklahoma I got a, a job making minimum wage at Citizens Bank of Edmond in the bookkeeping department, and I applied for my dream job at the Federal Reserve. I was in their management development program for almost 10 years, Oklahoma City, then Kansas City. They paid for the rest of my master's degree, sent me to postgraduate school at the University of Wisconsin. And then when I went to graduate school, the postgraduate school is a banking school, um, you pretend like you're running a bank. And I just felt like she was alive at this time, but Mrs. Mabry just, her spirit just overwhelmed me just thinking about not only can you have this really fun business model of running a bank, but you can impact the people of a community so profoundly by being in that position, such a position of such social good. And I just fell in love with the thought of becoming a community banker. It's a three-year program. One of my classmates recruited me up to his bank in northern Minnesota to be the CFO, three hours north of Minneapolis. And was there for two years. My mom married into the family that owns Citizens Bank. Like, all this is just so serendipitous. And um, the bank gets into trouble. And then I get asked to come and help turn around the bank. And so came back 11 years ago, led a turnaround. Um, Lots of crazy things happened there. And then the board appointed me to this position. So much longer probably than the 10 minutes I was allotted. No, that's fantastic. But but it's a pretty crazy story. And I think really shows that if you kind of lean into the path um, that you, if, I mean, I think we're all really called to do things in our lives. And if we lean into the path that's kind of drawn out for us, then, you know, you eventually find where you're supposed to be and where you can do the most good. So I heard you say several things that I think are, are exceptionally critical. One, um, early in your life, um, someone who had nothing to gain um, from befriending you or investing in you, um, at the very least, applied a lot of time and thought. I mean, somebody who every time they see you thinks about you and asks about you, which then what I heard you say, if it had not been for her doing that, you would not have even considered starting down this path. And and so if you hadn't done that, if you hadn't started down the path, then all of those other things that lined up for you wouldn't wouldn't have been there. And then the other thing that that I think is really critical about your story is, um, yes, a lot of serendipity, a lot of 
and I don't believe in luck. I believe in providence, and so I, yes. you know, I believe that God lines things up for us. Yes. But you were working the whole. I mean, you were moving yourself down that line. I, I was telling somebody the other day, not so much the you, the reason I think of this is you said you hitchhiked down to Texas, which of course now everybody would cringe if you say the word hitchhike because <laughs> yeah. that seems like a really dangerous. I thing. ride share down to Texas. <laughs> but when I was in college, we hitchhiked. You know, I hitchhiked from Chicago to Carverville, Indiana, several times, and. Um, you know, I, I used to pick up hitchhikers, but I used to tell people I only pick up hitchhikers who are walking. I don't pick up people. I wouldn't pick up people who were just standing at an mm. intersection with their thumb out. But if they were moving in the direction they wanted to go, you know, they, people used to walk with the one thumb stuck. I would pull over and give them a ride because they were moving themselves in the right direction. Mm. They were just asking for help. And I'm willing to help somebody who's moving themselves in the right direction. And so, you know, that's the other thing I heard you say is while a lot of things happened in a great order for you. You never stopped putting the effort in. Um, so let's transition from that uh, to, to a more specific question about investing in, in the things that people care about. Because at the foundation, we like to talk about uh, the, the, our belief, our fundamental belief that everybody is intrinsically and equally valuable. Mm-hmm. And then how are the ways that we as leaders and through our organizations and the cultures do we demonstrate that and, and communicate that. And one of the ways is to invest in the things that matter to people. And so on this, on this journey, um, and, and now, how, does, how has that impacted, because you're now in a position where you can invest in a lot of people and influence a lot of people. And so what, what, is that, what has that given you? What, tell me a little bit about how you do that today. And so I should carry on the story a little bit about Mrs. Mabry because she continued to write to me through the rest of my career until she passed away. Um, whether I was at the Fed or the bank in Minnesota, I mean, she continued to invest in me and, and tell me that she was proud of me, which still like chokes me up to even think about. Um, and so whenever it, it does make you realize how much we all impact so many people, no matter what your position is. And actually, sometimes the position, if you're in a higher level position, can impede your ability to really connect with those that you can accelerate and grow, whether it's your own team or community members. And so the, for me, it's always been this high degree of accessibility to making sure that there are no barriers to accessibility, that my cell phone is readily available and I'm encourage anyone in the community it's publicly available to text me or call me at any time 24 7 Um, engaging on social media is another piece from a community standpoint where you're answering every single direct message so like an example is um, we've gone through this crisis with COVID and there was a lot of small businesses really hurting around the nation and um, utilizing social media they were reaching out saying "I, I can't find anyone to help me do a PPP loan And they may be in the Bronx or Miami, Florida, or San Francisco. And we're in Oklahoma, small community bank. I can't serve them. But what I did is I, like, I will hustle and find a bank to do this loan for you. And literally several thousand banks that we, I mean, um, small businesses connecting them along the way with no financial benefit. Well, that led to being able to then interact with Mark Cuban having the same challenges and then collaborating with him. And so I think for us, it's just being this, this consistent presence, being very accessible, being open to being aware and valuing everybody, no matter where they are, what their station of life is. And that's where the doors have opened to be able to even help more people. Um, and that's a, we see the same thing on our team. I'm, I, I said in our bank lobby, I'm working directly with our 
the what we can be considered like the lowest level of our team members from a pay standpoint, but they have the highest degree of access to me. And so, and we, even with that, um, encouraging not just your value and what you bring to the organization, but how do we invest in your value as a person? And so uh, we encourage you to have dreams beyond the bank if that's if this isn't the career that you want. So we have a side hustle factory in which we will literally invest in um, ideas that our team members have to start their own business, whether that's just to make them aware of entrepreneurship challenges with our customers or if they actually find something that they want to pursue on their own. And so, um, and, and all that comes through then really seeing like meeting a, a teller that's an entrepreneur and trying to start a business and thinking, wow, we have the resources to help this person. And it might be a program that we can implement that can help so many more or in, you know, incite some um, drive to um, to either understand our entrepreneurs better or to instill that entrepreneurship spirit either as a member of our team or someone that wants to go out and forge something on their own. So that presence, accessibility, um, having being humble enough, not not saying I want to be in an ivory tower, but really saying I'm of the team and I'm here to serve you rather than looking at it as if everybody is supposed to be serving me. Um, I think we also miss out on being able to really be in the grocery store aisle like we used to decades ago, where you could really feel what the community was, how they were hurting, how they were celebrating, and how you could directly impact that. Mrs. Mayberry is a good example. We're not having someone carry groceries out for us really anymore. Right. So how do you make those connections and knowing who's in need in your community? And so for me, it's more that virtual aspect with social media and using that as a gateway to then have a, a personal connection, go to coffee. I never turn down a coffee invitation, a Zoom call um, interaction with anyone. Um, I don't think about how it's going to value me. I think about how that, that there's a reason that we are intersecting and that I need to be present in the moment with that person. So a lot of leaders who are listening are probably right now thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, how does she get anything done if she's got that level of accessibility? Because all of us struggle with, you know, our calendars getting filled up and, and we need, and we do as leaders, we need time to work and time to, you know, do the visioning and the, and the deep work that we do. Tell us a little bit, I mean, what, I'll tell you what I heard. I heard you say that while that is something that is from your heart and, and you're doing because you care about people, you are experiencing benefits, real tangible benefits to your business and to the community from doing that because that's where ideas come from. That's where your understanding of what the community is going through and if you're going to serve the community knowing where their needs lie, what's really going on. So you're, you're getting tangible benefits from that. But it comes at a cost. How do you how do you balance that as a leader? Yeah, I'm probably not very good at it, honestly. Um, but I find that it all works out. That if I lean into it, then there's opportunities that are created for me to to have a long drive to be able to think about things. And you know, I, I love the early mornings. So I go and eat breakfast at the same place every single morning by myself, and I know it's a time of reflection and devotion as well as planning for me. Um, and I keep those pretty safe that time pretty sacred. Um, I just try to be really present with whoever I'm with, uh, whether it's my family, because um, that can come as a co- at a cost with a with a busy career. Um, to making sure that I'm present as a mother, as a wife, and, and then as a business leader and a community member. I also just don't fill my calendar with things that don't bring me joy or that I don't feel like they're just feeding an ego. So I won't serve on a board if it's more of a just a 
if it's just a fiduciary capacity to check it off. And so I don't, those are kind of time sucks for me rather than being part of uh, movements or where I really feel like my expertise are, are needed or that my resources can be a help to someone. So there's probably a little bit more discipline on that side than there is on the um, really the accessibility and filling up my calendar with individuals. And we're talking five, 10 minutes. I don't spend an hour. So, but just that five or 10 minutes can give me a flavor. Like, can I help this person? Can they, is there something here? Or is it just like, you know, an, you know two shits passing in the dark, you know, that's like, okay, this right. we met. But so many of those have turned in three or four years down the road into the fundamental building blocks of who I am as a leader or a person and the businesses. So if I would have dismissed it and said, I, you know, I really need to do some planning instead of meeting with this person, almost always when I think this is something I should cancel is the one that brings the greatest blessings. So um, I just lean into that and have faith, and I've, I've found that the time always kind of works out uh, for itself. So That's fantastic. I, you know, We've all heard this. I think it's very, very hard to practice. It sounds like you're doing a pretty good job of it. Um, we have to say no a lot so that we can say yes to the right things. And what I hear you saying is you're saying no to a lot of things that are, are kind of typical fodder for leaders. We tend to get stacked up on boards and in committee meetings and doing all this stuff that gets our names on lists and we're running in certain circles. But if there's no passion there, then that really is just spinning your wheels. And and you're making uh, specific and intentional choices to kind of not do a lot of things that a traditional CEO might be doing so that you can do these things that are less traditional, but A, bring you joy. And you've also found that that's a, a substantial way in which you're making your organization and the people in your organization mm-hmm. successful. So that that's phenomenal. So let's talk a minute about your bank and, and about your organization, because as leaders, you know, that's what we do. We mm-hmm. run these organizations and, and they all have purposes. Um, Citizens Bank uh, of Edmond is known for community involvement. These kinds of things you're talking about, those are not just words that are written on a wall or that you say when you get an opportunity to be you know, interviewed for the newspaper. That's what the people in the community think about your bank and think about you all as an organization. So... Um, you, like everybody else, everybody who walks through your door, you can't give everybody a loan. You can't provide everybody everything they need. Um, there's always going to be this give and take, and we all, all have that problem in organizations. When we're talking about investing in people, um, whether that's the business of investing in people or whether I'm just a leader in an organization and I want to invest in the things that matter to my people, um, tell me a little bit about how you all do that. And, and not just how you do it when you are actually able to invest, but how do you continue to make people feel valued and heard when maybe the answer is, no, I can't give you a loan for this kind of kind of vibe. You know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, my husband's in sales and he's like, well, you know, you can do all, you know, get every business that you can. This is so easy. Just, you know, I can get this guy to you and this guy to you for a loan. But unfortunately for us, we have to say no, like you're, you're busy trying to get the business, but then sometimes you're when you get to the table with someone that's like, I know I've been really wanting you to bank here, but now we can't because of this reason. And so it's a really complicated um, business model. But I will say, like, I approach everything with trying to get to yes. So if you have a, you know, uh, credit hurdles in your background and maybe don't have the resources right now to to have a bankable loan, um, my goal is to be your banker for the next 5, 10, 20 years. And so if I can't do something right now, how do I set you up for success two or three years down the road? And what are those, What when you come away from a meeting with me, do you have a plan 
of how how to achieve that dream and, and just being very honest and not being concerned what someone thinks, like knowing that having the assumption that we're at the intention to help you achieve your dream. And um, then I just am really honest about what I see that pathway potentially could be and what our role and even sometimes referring to other institutions that might be able to help someone um, outside of, of, of my bank. It also would like developing community market partnerships to know uh, credit repair services and you know they're they're really helpful to consumers and businesses or um, startup um, incubators that can help guide someone if they're in the early stages um, and the same is with our team members um, if they have a dream to be a CPA well then how can I help you become a CPA and so really investing in that time and mentorship and connecting all these people that I get to run into via five-minute zoom calls or coffees that I can connect with our team members to help them grow um, so it's very um, just centered on the individual, being very um, present, understanding what their needs are, figuring out how can I help them and how can I do that in the long run. As a result, the bank doesn't really do any marketing. Um, it's all about creating advocacy in the community based upon who we are and what we, who, how we exercise who we are in the community. And, um, and I just think every single one of those little, little efforts just incrementally build to that brand value that that trumps any kind of marketing budget that I could put forward. Yeah, I would imagine that you can't pay for um, the kind of press you get when both your team members are out in the community bragging about how great it is to be a part of Citizens Bank because you are investing in their dreams and they know that if, you know, their dream isn't to be a teller for their whole life, they've got bigger, bigger visions and you're actually investing in that even if it's just, if, even if all you can do is make connections for them and help them and encourage them, even mm -hmm. if it's being Mrs. Mayberry to mm -hmm. the next, you know, yes. person who, who you run into. And then also your customers, because what I heard you say is your intention is for everybody to leave the bank and meetings with you and your team feeling like they've been heard, even if you can't give them what they need in that moment. And, and, and basically sending them on their way saying, hey, we're going to continue to be here to help you. Keep coming back and we'll, let's keep talking about what you need. And, and so, again, it's just that investing in, in, in them knowing that you care makes a, makes a huge difference. And our mantra is if you do good, you'll do well. So as long as my intentions are good and interacting with someone. So there's, um, there was an, a session I attended with the Fed, and they, I just saw it on Facebook one day, and it was how – how to create remove barriers for black female entrepreneurs to banking. And I went to the event. I was the only banker there. They hadn't advertised it with the banking community and hearing these stories about these women and the challenges that they've had even for generations. And so I started helping them with their banks. Like, how do you overcome this hurdle with your bank? Not thinking even like even trying to get their business, but just to help them with their banks. And that has like integrated us into community that has brought us so much joy and given us um, access to team members that contribute to the diversity of our team and then the entrepreneurship community just throughout the city that created some legitimacy because it wasn't just we were going after the deal. It was about really trying to make this a better, more equitable place. And so um, it's just really just amazing what you can do when you make yourself present, whenever you lean into things that may not seem to be even applicable to you, but just following that leadership of uh, what um, the interventions, whether it's meeting an individual or seeing a Facebook um, event posting, just knowing that you need to be certain places to be able to create those opportunities for your team and your community. Oh, absolutely. That is, that is fabulous. 
Um, I always ask my guests a completely off the wall weird question, and sometimes I ask at the beginning, sometimes at the end. So you got it at the end. But tell me a little bit about the worst job you ever had. Um, so the worst job, it's it's was you know I think worst jobs and worst bosses are such a blessing to have because they teach you the most. My worst job it was I was the human resource officer manager at the Oklahoma City Fed when we were downsizing 75% of our staff. And um, we were giving everyone over a year's notice that they were going to be eliminated. Um, and so we had you know, tons of anxiety, um, an institution that's um, celebrating its 100th anniversary uh, this, this month maybe even. We've been here for, since 1921. Uh, just an incredible history, 180-plus team members that were going to be going down to, you know, just a, a few dozen. Um, really difficult to develop, like, the retirement, early retirement plans, exit strategies, managing all the anxieties and um, concerns and then the issues when there were, like, temporary staff integrating with a, a transitioning team. It was really, really difficult, and we faced leadership challenges as well because leadership was also losing their position too. So that experience took the most out of me, but then when I look back on it, it taught me the most. It taught me more about like human fear and behavior and, and how you can create assurances even though there's uncertainty with an outcome and how do you prepare someone for success after they live in an organization, maybe someplace where they've been for 30 years, um, and, and make them feel valued, even though they're going to be terminated. So um, it was such a challenging time. I went straight to that and to uh, moving to Kansas City. Um, but that, that, that was really a difficult time. Um, it was a really challenging job. I don't know if I call it a bad job, but um, it's not something I would want to repeat is how I would. Um, I hear you. But, but, um, and I think being part of a growth business versus a business that is, that you're, that's dying so difficult to manage through something that you can see that the end is in sight versus trying to manage to adjust to be innovative to overcome that challenge. And banking gets that rap a lot that we there's going to be a sunset to community banking. But I love the challenge of it that you can redefine what community banking is without lo- use, losing the um, the incredible kind of George Bailey. Um, it's, it's a wonderful life experience of being a community banker. And so I don't think it's all bad to be part of something that's perceived as dying because there's an opportunity to really um, change course and be innovative and create a new char- path um, going forward. Is that kind of the mascot movie for the community banking industry is It's a Wonderful Life? And I, kind I, of you, the George I mean, Bailey we do. all hope that that's who we are. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, but you, you, know, you don't want to be Mr. Potter. And no, so, right, but, right. Yeah, and there's that, you know, the, you know, banking is not like a divine calling that, you know, it's, it's always been kind of viewed as something that's not, not good. And so how do you create really that George Bailey experience for yourself as a, as a steward of that industry and then live that as you go to work every day and instill that with the team that you're working in. Yeah, that's fabulous. Okay, one last question with the minute or two we have left. Um, if you had an opportunity, and I'm sure you do, but for our listeners, if you have an opportunity to speak to young or emerging leaders, not that you're an old leader, you're still kind of a young leader yourself, but uh, you know somebody that, that, that envisions themselves being in leadership and is, is embarking on that path, um, what's a, a word of encouragement or wisdom or advice that you would give them? 
Um, I look back on my experience and those times of shame, um, those times of the greatest discouragement, those were the times in which it, without them, I would not be the person I am today. And so really feeling where you are and persevering through it is so important to building that success in the future. You, can, you don't value the light if you don't experience the darkness. And so to really experience it, not be consumed by it, to forge and keep walking until you find that light again, because all that experience that you that was difficult and challenging um, will be prepare you for the, the great things ahead. And then similarly, there's um, some people, some some young people that have never had that type of experience. And so being able to volunteer to do a turnaround of a company or be part of an HR of a downsizing organization, I mean, those are the things that make you really understand your character. Do you care for people or do you care for yourself? Do you, and, and you really are able to become much more self-aware so that you're prepared the leader that you need to be in the future. Oh, that's wonderful. Um, love that. Love that. Yes, I, in my life, I would say that the, that the darkest moments in retrospect gave me the most opportunity for growth. And like you said, I don't want to go repeat those necessarily, but I would not be who I am and would not be where I am now without those. Jill, it has been wonderful talking to you today. Uh, you're such a dynamic leader, and you're, you know, you've done so much, and your organization does so much for our community. I just want to thank you for that, and thank you for being uh, a leader among leaders and for being with us today on Word from the Herd. Thank you so much, Thomas. It's been my pleasure. Absolutely. This has been Word from the Herd. We really appreciate you joining us today, and we look forward to being with you next week. Thank you for joining us today on Word from the Herd, a production of the Kimmel Foundation. For more information about the Kimmel Foundation, visit us at thekimmelfoundation.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at thekimmelfdn. Please share this podcast and join us again next week for another Word from the Herd.